This episode of Policing Matters is brought to you by Lexapol, the experts in policy, training, wellness support, and grants assistance for first responders and government leaders. To learn more, visit Lexapol.com. That's L-E-X-I-P-O-L.com. Welcome back. You are listening to Policing Matters on PoliceOne.com. I'm your host, Jim Dudley. Hey, screening candidates into public safety positions is a crucial time period in the hiring process. In spite of difficult recruiting times, we still want the best and the brightest people that we can find. Although we may be tempted to lower standards to enlist more people, there is certainly hazard to that. Still, most departments have a written, an oral, a physical agility test, a polygraph examination, and a psychological profile test. Are we screening out people who probably are not suited for the job? I read an article recently with interest when it cited a phenomenon called mental condition black, where an officer in training overreacted to low-level video screening and opted to use lethal force. Trainers apparently voiced their concerns, and yet the officer was retained. A few months later, lethal force was used by the same individual. And while the investigation is ongoing, we will not speculate as to whether causes of force was justified in this particular case. Still, it gnawed on me. Why hadn't I ever heard of this mental condition black? I sought out professionals who might be able to explain it to me and you our audience. What is it? Can we spot it? Is it real? Who gets it? Well, today our guest is Dr. Paul Taylor from the University of Colorado at Denver, and Dr. Taylor's research focuses on police decision-making, human factors, and system safety in the context of potential use-of-force encounters with an eye toward improving outcomes. He has over 10 years of practical law enforcement experience, including time as an in-service instructor, field training officer, patrol sergeant, and department training manager. Paul is the founder of the Association of Force Investigators, and he is actively engaged in police research and training across the country. His early research received awards from the American Society of Criminology and the Division of Policing at the American Society of Criminology. Paul works closely with a number of local, state, and federal law enforcement agencies in a wide range of consulting and training roles. Well, welcome to the show, Dr. Paul Taylor. Jim, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, you come highly recommended, and I've had a chance to look at your work. It's really outstanding what you're doing for the profession. Um, you know, my kudos to you. What can you tell us about this mental condition black? Yeah, it's really been an evolutionary process in law enforcement. Uh, Jeff Cooper developed a, a color code of situational awareness, um, going from condition white to yellow, orange, red, and black. And really the way that, you know, he, he laid that out is at a condition white, we're not really paying attention to anything. Condition yellow, we're, we're a little more aware. Condition orange, we're walking around looking for threats. Condition uh, red, we've I, we've identified a threat. We're we're addressing it, and then condition black, kind of we've we've gone beyond. We're we're no longer able to pay attention to our environment. Um, 
that that um so with that there's probably some issues with the, the concept of situational awareness we've kind of have applied that uh to law enforcement uh encounters after the fact uh and said well this is what an officer could or should have been aware of rather than really understanding what the officer was aware of but it was a concept and it, it really uh took off with police trainers uh for how officers should approach work. Um, and then in 1997, Bruce Sedell and Grossman took the color code, took Jeff Cooper's color code, but then they also looked at research that was done by Yerkes and Dotson on the inverted U law. And Yerkes and Dotson, this, this is one of the few laws we have in, in psychology. Uh, Yerkes and Dotson found that there's a relationship between arousal and performance, that as we get more aroused, our performance actually improves to a certain point. And then after that point, our, our performance starts to degrade as our arousal continues to increase. Um, that holds fairly true. And there's a significant amount of research uh, on that. Well, Sedell and Grossman took that and they took Jeff Cooper's color code and they came up with their own color code, but they tied it directly to heart rate. Uh, and Sedell and and Sedell specifically developed PPCT, which was a, a popular defensive tactics, still is a popular defensive tactics um, kind of training uh, um, um, module, for lack of a better term. And, and so he they took that and they said, well, at, at condition white, that's a fairly low heart rate. Uh, but as you go up, your performance goes up to condition black, which they said started around 175 beats per minute. Well, that's problematic. The research doesn't support that. Um, when we start looking at um, actual uh, evidence from, from the real world, that doesn't support it either. What we know is that people can have very high heart rates and they can still perform very, very well. So for instance, a Navy SEAL likely has a very high heart rate, but is still performing well. A firefighter can have a very high heart rate and as they're focused on their task, they can still perform very, very well. Heart rate is correlated with arousal. That is, my heart rate probably goes up as I become more aroused, but heart rate does not cause uh, uh, arousal and it doesn't cause uh, performance degrad degradation as we get as we get up higher. Um, so that was problematic, but it took off in policing. It took off in police training um, and uh, trainers started pulling that in and started using it. Uh, to uh, for stress inoculation that they would call it. And so they would have uh, recruits and officers do push-ups or run up a berm and say, we're going to get their heart rate up and, and their performance uh, will, will degrade or they'll, they'll get to a peak performance, but we'll inoculate them against stress. Well, that just doesn't work that way. We can't take one type of stress, physiological stress, and then correlate that or tie it over to uh, the stress of being involved in an officer-involved shooting or a high-level use of force event. Um, we can't really take any type of stress and, and tie it across. Um, and, and the other issue is stress is very specific to the individual. What arouses you may not arouse me, uh, right? So I may have phobias, I may have triggers that impact me that don't impact you. Um, and so that's kind of the evolution and how uh, Condition Black got into the, the law enforcement nomenclature. Mm -hmm. um, it, there's not really research on Condition Black 
there is a lot of research on the relationship between arousal and performance um, and kind of the variables that can that can impact that. Yeah, thanks for that explanation. So in terms of, say, sports, so we have a quarterback who uh, is in the training room and then he goes into the uh, film review session and he's got his normal heart rate and he's examining the defenses and then come game day. Uh, he may be throwing up in the huddle and he's, his heart rate is zooming and he's got defensive linemen flying at him. And essentially it's our body uh, reaction to stress and makes us more aware, maybe uh, gives us that fight or flight um, reaction time. And then he performs well in a game or doesn't. Yeah, stress is a part of it, but but I, I'm really careful not to give too much to stress. Um, really, it has more to do with focus of attention, right? So I can be sitting uh, watching a, a football game uh, on my couch, and my significant other, my wife, will come in and she'll say something, and I won't hear anything, right? Uh, and I'm experiencing auditory exclusion, and I'm not stressed in that moment. It has to do with what I'm focusing my attention on. Now, uh, I'll be stressed when she starts throwing things at me, uh, but at that moment, I'm not. I'm not stressed. Um, and so, another, you know, another analogy would be uh, my son playing soccer for the first time and he gets the ball and he's dribbling the ball and he dribbles it all the way down the field, uh, but he's going the wrong direction. And we're all yelling at him, son, stop, turn around. No, no. And he kicks the goal in. He's so excited. He's celebrating. He had, he had you know, what we would define as condition black in that moment. That has far more to do with uh, his development of skill, he's still focused on dribbling the ball. This is still a new skill for him. And when that skill hasn't been developed to automaticity, he has to focus all of his attention on that skill. Uh, and so he doesn't hear us. He doesn't even realize what direction he's traveling. You see a similar phenomenon so, uh, in, on a jujitsu mat or, or on, a, on a wrestling mat. When you have somebody new who's experiencing this for the first time, uh, and the, they start feeling pressure and they feel like they're in a situation they can't get out of, almost everybody, in fact, everybody will panic. They'll start doing things that are almost counterproductive uh, for themselves. But after some exposure to that, after my son has played soccer for a while, after he's developed the skill set to the point of automaticity and no longer has to pay attention to the dribbling the ball, he's able to open up that his his awareness of what's going on he's able to open up his focus of attention uh and that's no longer no longer an issue uh the same goes kind of on the jujitsu mat as people get practice they start to understand when they are in danger when they aren't in danger and what what they need to do they actually are have tools to deal with the situation um and so Another issue that we see with kind of this broad or kind of over generalization of things like condition black is that it, we're using it to define a lot of different behaviors that have a lot of different causal influences. Uh, and so uh, when we do that, we actually miss the causation in the individual case. Um, and so I, I think that that can be problematic as well. We have to be careful that that's not our stopping point in investigating and looking at these at these cases, rather than saying, oh, that, that looks like condition black to me. We really should be trying to understand why the officer performed that way in this particular case, uh, particularly in a training environment. Mm-hmm. 
And would you would you say that it's similar to tunnel vision, where we the focus just goes to one point and excludes all others? Yeah, tunnel vision. Again, we've kind of we've kind of given that a bad name in, in, in policing. We've said tunnel vision is 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 something to avoid. Not that we can avoid it, uh, but it's that's a narrowing of our focus of attention. Um, and, uh, you know, again, when my son plays baseball, I want him to have tunnel vision on the ball, uh, when he's batting, that's where I want his focus of attention to be. I don't want him to hear what they're yelling from the crowd. I don't want him to see the outfield. I want his focus of attention to be on the ball. Um, and the same goes for an officer involved shooting or use of force event. That tunnel vision is there so that we can focus our attention very intently on a threat, on, on a performance activity in that moment. Um, and, and so, um, yeah, I think we've attributed condition black and tunnel vision and auditory exclusion um, all to kind of the same thing, um, but really it all comes down to, to focus of attention and where we focus our attention. Uh, mm -hmm. As we get experience and as we get technical expertise with our tools and our tasks, that allows us to devote more of our attentional resources outward. Um, if you have somebody who's panicking in a situation, um, then, then really oftentimes it has to do with A, they don't have the tools to deal with this. They don't understand what's happening. Um, they don't have the tools to deal with the situation. They're encountering a new situation that they've never encountered before, um, or they don't have their tools trained to the point of automaticity and they're having to focus their attention on those tasks while something else is demanding their attention in the moment, uh, like like an emerging threat. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Is so it's a long way to getting somebody in the academy and throwing shell casings at them where they're while they're trying to perform. Long before that, if we get to psychological testing before the job offer, is there a point in screening where we can? Uh, get a hint or some indication that this person is susceptible to this. I, well, I think I think we do uh, psychological screening. I I think and, and on that point, uh, so condition black, we all, oftentimes kind of look at it as a um, almost a personal deficit. Can we look at an individual? And, and, and usually we don't identify condition black until it's a hindsight attribution, right? Like we have an event. And we look at behavior and we typically say, well, I don't understand that behavior. And so we, we slap a label on it and we say condition black rather than digging in and trying to say, why did you do what it is that you did? Um, but when, we, when, when we're talking about trying to screen individuals, it, it, it would be extraordinarily difficult because we're all susceptible to it. We're, we're all susceptible to it in, in situations that we encounter in, in which we don't necessarily have uh, the skills or the tools to deal with that situation. And so if, if, I, if I want to improve um, uh, the, the likelihood that somebody won't experience that while they're working uh, as a police officer out on the street, that's developing their, their skill sets to the point that they don't have to think about those skill sets. They're able to focus their attention outward. Uh, we don't we don't do that currently in policing. Uh, when you have a, a 40 hour uh, or 80 hour defensive tactics training course or, and you, you, know, you have a firearms training course that almost always focuses on 
um, passing the qualification, uh, you, you aren't training people to make decisions with those tools under the circumstances that officers are, are faced with. And so you dramatically increase the likelihood for uh, an officer encountering this situation in which they don't have necessarily the tools or, or the training to deal with, with that situation. We also kind of attribute a, a logical thought process to these encounters, right? So when, we, when we're writing policy or we're developing training, we, we're developing training from a place and policy from a place of thinking about this uh, from a logical thought process. But if, and, and there's there's research on this, Klinger and Brunson did a study on, on officer, uh, they, it was a qualitative study. They interviewed over 90 officers that had been involved in shootings and, and over 80% of them and this is the ones that know that they experience this, reported experiencing either tunnel vision or auditory exclusion during, during the encounter. That means that their focus of attention was so captured by what was happening in front of them, they, they would not have attentional resources for other things. Mm -hmm. That includes communication, that includes you know, drawing their weapon. So you know, you'll see draw strokes that look nothing like uh, they, they do on the range. Um, they're not going to be able to remember number of rounds fired. Um, you know, so all of these things that we, we kind of talk about in the training environment. And as we write policy, we're thinking about from a logical person standpoint, if a, if a logical person is making this decision in their capacity, like they are sitting in, in, in a room like you and I are, um, then, then all of these things are possible. As you start to take away those attentional resources, as, as, as the demand for their attentional resources are taken up, they, they're no longer going to have attention for things like um, language and, and, and the tools that they're using. And so uh, the example I use of this is if you're driving down the road and you're having a conversation with somebody, and suddenly you have to take evasive action with the car, that conversation comes to an immediate end. You can't continue that conversation and at the same time take evasive action. Um, and, and so we have to, I think we have to be really careful about what we put on uh, these, these types of encounters. Mm -hmm. So I'm no hands-on trainer at the academy um, in physical skills or, or firearms. So maybe it's not unusual that I've never heard of it, but our posts, uh, state posts acknowledging this and uh, are they filtering down uh, to trainers what to look for and what's a proper response to this if they see it? Uh, so I, I would say no. Um, I don't I don't think we're doing a very good job of that at all. I think I think we are very uh, tied uh, to our our kind of uh, our post structures uh, in the states and and uh, those structures are not conducive to to um, to developing the best decision makers uh, in law enforcement. Uh, as far as condition black goes, uh, I, I hope that 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 term doesn't become the what we're looking for. I hope what we're starting to look for is this decision making ability. Um, and uh, I hope that we can develop training academies in which uh, mistakes can happen. Uh, that's that's a critical aspect of learning. If I if I told my son that he needed to learn how to ride his bike without ever making a mistake, uh, that that learning process wouldn't occur, right? I, I couldn't teach him uh, and then have him go out and suddenly ride his bike. And and I think oftentimes we use scenario uh, and simulator based training as a test. 
uh, when we really should be using that training as a way to develop decision making, as a way to develop uh, uh, better practice rather than rather than testing. It's a safe place to do that, and and I think in this case it's a little bit unfortunate that we're saying uh, he well a. Uh, how are we defining condition black? And, and in this case, they're saying he couldn't hear his radio or he wasn't paying attention to his radio uh, and he wasn't paying attention uh, I, I, to what other people were saying around him or he experienced auditory exclusion. That is very normal in, in these circumstances. Um, you know, his decision making needs to be addressed. And if you saw an ongoing pattern of that type of decision making, that would need to be addressed. I think our academies don't do a good job of that. I think particularly in this recruiting environment, we are we have a tendency to push people through. Uh, I think we have a tendency to underdocument poor performance. Uh, I think we have a tendency uh, to allow them to move to the next stage, uh, similar to our education system, uh, without really uh, uh, taking the steps that we need to, to fix issues that we see uh, along, along the way. Um, uh, very, you know, reading the article uh, out of Tacoma, very, very general, uh, um, you know, not a lot of information there. Uh, but I, but I would say, I, I hope that we're not getting to the point where making mistakes in training is absolutely detrimental to the long-term effect of, of an officer. If you saw that repeated activity over a period of time and you couldn't improve that, absolutely. The other side to it is, is that we hire human beings. Uh, that's that's a fact of the matter. And and people have inherent uh, uh, vulnerabilities uh, in dynamic environments when they're trying to make decisions. Um, and we don't do a very good job about learning and about how to improve off, mm -hmm. of, off of our outcomes. We're often very focused on the individual involved rather than trying to understand the systemic influences that create the outcomes that 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 we see. Yeah, I'm really glad you said all of that, what you just said about, um, you know, sometimes we're so rigid in our standards, and we only tend to look for one answer to a problem. And we don't really appreciate maybe, you know, some creative problem solving that a recruit candidate might do when as trainers, we're only looking for one outcome. And I think that's where we fail sometimes. Uh, rather than using it as a teaching moment saying, hey, I, I saw what you did there, but we think there's a better way to handle it. And, you know, I, I'm sure you're seeing it with your students there at University of Colorado that what I'm seeing in my students is that fear of failure. So they try to do minimal uh, things um, or sometimes, uh, you know, that they, they know they're being graded. And so they don't want to, um, you know, try something that uh, maybe goes above and beyond training. And I know, you know, we, we've used tried and true training and looking for outcomes, but instead of going from a straight line, if, if you take a, if you have a student who goes a little securitist route and gets to the same point in the same amount of time, wh why can't we adjust to that? Uh, absolutely. And, and behavior isn't necessarily indicative, visible behavior isn't necessarily indicative of the decision-making process to get there. We often look at the outcome 
Um, and we, we judge it based on that, but process isn't necessarily related outcomes. So we have to be careful about that. But my follow-up question to that Academy is, was this just one scenario we ran or did we, were we doing a lot of simulator and scenario-based training where officers were engaged in that decision-making process? And how was it being used? Was this a check the box thing that we, we said, well, this is a decision-making test and we're checking the box or we're, we're not. Um, and, and, I, and again, I think it's very problematic to use scenarios and, and simulations as, um, as, a, as, a, as a test. We really should be using it as, as decision-making experience as much as possible. And that should make up a significant portion of what an officer is doing. If you look at our training, it's very, very siloed at our, most of our academies. You know, you you get your your legal portion. You you get you know maybe uh, a portion on communication. You get some firearms. You get some defensive tactics. You get some driving, uh, and very, very little of it overlaps and, and starts to come together. And that's that's problematic. Uh, it creates decision issues for officers. If I tried to train a baseball player. Like that, if I if I if I said, okay, what's what's important for a, or let's say basketball, what's important for a basketball player? Well, he's got to be able to shoot the basketball. So I put him on the free throw line, and he shot until he could hit eighty percent. We said that's a good number; he can hit eighty percent. And they said, what else? Oh, he needs to be able to dribble. So we have him dribble around some cones, right? Because we don't want to put him into a real game; he's brand new. But he dribbles around some cones. And then I sat him down for the rest of the, of the academy and I taught him the history of basketball and I taught him with PowerPoints all the rules of the game. How prepared would that person be for decision-making in an actual game? And, and, and the, the truth of the matter is they wouldn't be. And yet that's exactly what we do with law enforcement officers. And we wonder why there's deficits in decision-making ability when they get out and they actually have to make decisions. When you look at a nursing program, the first two years are education, right? You're sitting in a classroom, you're learning theory. The second two years are all practical. You're out there practicing. You're in the hospital practicing under direct supervision. You're you're learning while doing. That's that's a critical aspect that that we're largely missing in law enforcement. And and I would advocate we need more time. Uh, when you have a six-month academy, it's just not enough time, particularly given the complex decision environment which officers face out on the street today. Mm -hmm. And so if we want to reduce incidents where officers appear to be panicking or they appear not to have the solution to the problem that they're facing, we've got to spend more time preparing them to make those decisions and making them comfortable with the skill set. The other, the other absolute myth out there is that more use of force training increases a propensity for use of force, right? The whole idea that uh, if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Uh, we would never say that about a surgeon. We would never say, hey, listen, you need to spend more time in surgery, practicing your surgery, uh, or we don't want you to practice in surgery um, because we're afraid you're gonna, you're just gonna wanna do surgery on everybody. We're, we're not creating hammers. We're not creating tools. We're creating decision makers. And the more skilled you are with your skill sets, the better you're, you are going to be at making decisions in these types of encounters. Hmm. Uh, that doesn't mean that we're not, we're not continuing to train all these aspects. But uh, if we want better use of force decisions, we have to increase both 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 uh, the amount and 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 the and we have to look at how we're training uh, these these modules. Uh, we look at our qualification courses uh, for shooting. 
what does four rounds in four seconds represent in the real world? And oftentimes you'll have trainers sitting back saying, um, hey, you had more time. You can slow down. Well, we never see a shooting evolve in four seconds where an officer is firing bang, 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 bang. It would never happen like that. And if the first time that an officer is shooting as fast as they can is a real world event, their performance is not going to be very good because they've never practiced that skill set in the real world or in, in, in a training environment. And so now we insert this into the real world and they're doing something that they've never, ever trained. We're going to get bad outcomes. We're going to get poor shot accuracy. Uh, we're going to get we're going to get uh, people um, not making the best decisions in that environment. Mm hmm. Hey, I want to get it. We so far we've been talking about uh, introductory training, if you will, and I want to talk about veteran officers training. Uh, but first, I'd like to take a moment and thank our sponsor. Lexapol empowers first responders and public servants to best meet the needs of their residents safely and responsibly, serving more than two million public safety and government professionals in over eight thousand agencies and municipalities. Lexapol offers a range of solutions that includes policies, training, behavioral health resources, news and analysis, and grant assistance services for law enforcement, fire and rescue, EMS, local government, and other agencies dedicated to public safety. To learn more, visit Lexapol.com. That's L-E-X-I-P-O-L.com. And we're back, and I'm speaking with Dr. Paul Taylor from the University of Colorado at Denver, talking about mental condition block, talking about training, about stress, and about uh, how we react uh, in these environments. So police officers experience trauma maybe 100 times more than the average citizen. Can officers experience this mental condition black somewhere in their careers over exposure to traumatic events? I guess I'm asking, you know, we have our our new candidates and they're responding to training. And now, you know, we've got some years, five years or more under our belt. We've seen a lot of trauma. And how is that affecting the performance of veteran officers with that accumulated exposure to trauma? Yeah, I, th- I think triggers can impact people, uh, and and that can, you, we can pick up triggers from a lot of different places. Certainly, over over a career of, of law enforcement, there are things that can start to trigger both our decision making processes um, and, and and other things. Uh, you can see it uh, with with uh, childhood experiences. So it's it's not just necessarily from policing, but but uh, many of us carry with us childhood experiences, and we're dealing with similar situations um, out on out on the street. Uh, so, for instance, if if I had an abusive and alcoholic father, and I'm I'm now dealing with a domestic violence situation that 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 involves an abusive and alcoholic uh, father, that can be that can be problematic. Um, trauma can come from the military. I think we have to be careful about overgeneralization, but. We all can have triggers uh, and we can develop those at different points in uh, in our experience, certainly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and talking a little bit about um, some of these situations we've seen in the media, and I know the the, the general public doesn't get it, um, but but people like you and, and experienced trainers, um, you can spot on a recording of an incident sometimes when you see it in the face of the officer or in their reactions. A lot of times we've seen it 
in situations where officers think they're grabbing their taser and they may even be yelling taser, 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 and they pull out their firearm and, you know, unfortunately, sometimes tragically, they fire. Um, have you seen that? I mean, that what's that condition and, and what can we do about that? Can we train that out? So I, I, I so no, I don't, I don't think we're going to, we're going to train that out. Uh, I think fundamentally uh, it comes down to the fact that again, 80, more than 80% of officers who've been involved in a shooting, which, which means that that would include situations that are leading up to and very similar to shootings experience some type of um, um, attentional issue, which means they're experiencing tunnel vision, they're experiencing auditory exclusion. That means their attentional resources are entirely taken up. Now, I'm not criticizing a particular company, uh, but if we have a tool on our belt that if we do everything to fire that tool with our firearm, that's problematic because officers do not have the attentional resources to differentiate. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to happen very often, but it increases the likelihood for that to happen. Uh, and fundamentally, I would argue it's a, it's a design issue. Uh, we've got two tools that operate exactly the same way. And if I do everything, if I'm holding a Glock and I flip my thumb up and I pull the trigger, the Glock is going to go off every single time. And I've, I've seen cases in which officers have no memory of firing any rounds and they've fired 10 rounds. Uh, I've seen situations in which officers say things like the gun suddenly appeared in my hand. Uh, I've seen situations in which officers uh, have no, no memory of other aspects of that event. And so that tells me the officers don't have the attentional resources during these encounters to differentiate between tools. We've had 17 now taser confusion shootings in North America. And what we know about human error is that people with similar training, similar experience, tend to respond to similar situations in similar ways. And so where we have one bad outcome, we're likely to have repeated bad outcomes across time and people. Officers have zero attentional resources to devote to their tools during a fight or a potential shooting. And so again, I think it comes down to a design issue uh, with, with, that, with that particular tool. Now, that's not to say that's the only issue that we face, right? Uh, there, there are significant other issues. Uh, but in the analysis of this, it's very easy to look at these events and say, that, that doesn't look like something I would do. Uh, and and I hear that I hear that a lot. Uh, you know, when we have cases like the Kim Potter shooting, uh, or, or we have other cases, it's very easy in hindsight to look at the case and say, "I wouldn't do that." Quite frankly, that doesn't matter in the analysis. What we should be trying to understand is why did it make sense for the officer to do exactly what they did in the moment? Because people always make decisions that make sense to them in the moment. Always, and, you know, if you're suffering from schizophrenia. You are making decisions in that moment that make sense to you. If you're a burglar breaking into a house, you're making decisions that make sense to you in that moment. Our officers are out there making decisions that make sense to them in the moment. Um, we're too often looking at it and we're saying, 
well, the individual is the problem when in fact we have some systemic influences that are creating repeated outcomes across time and people. And if we really are serious about improving those types of outcomes, which are tragedies all the way around, they're tragedies for the obviously the, the person who's hurt or killed, they're tragedies for the officer involved who's often prosecuted, at, uh, indicted and prosecuted uh, in these cases, uh, and they're tragedies per, for our profession. The, the true uh, tragedy from our profession is that we oftentimes say, well, there's the individual problem. That officer is the problem, rather than saying, what are the systemic issues that are, that are, that are creating these issues in multiple, in multiple cases? Mm -hmm. So knowing that and, and what we had talked about in training and veteran officers, should we be screening active duty officers over periods of time, say every five or 10 years, or built in as an automatic review after an officer involved shooting. I, I I think mental mental health and and mental health screenings are are would be advisable in law enforcement and and would would be a would be a good thing from an officer wellness standpoint. <clears throat> I would argue that if we really want to improve outcomes in officer decision making, we've got to rethink training altogether. So um, our officers are not getting nearly enough training uh, once they get out on, on the street. Uh, oftentimes that leads us to doing uh, very basic level reviews of our training during the short training times that we have. And that means we're putting officers out there who are not prepared to make decisions during these dynamic encounters. They're, they're just there. We haven't given them the training uh, to do that. And, and, and that really sets them up, that sets them up to, for failure. This is, listen, there are officers out there who seek this training out themselves, and that's fantastic. But this is the population that we're dealing with, and this is the outcomes that they're producing. And so that's evidence to me that we aren't anywhere near providing the level of training that we should be. And listen, training doesn't necessarily have to be uh, a, a full day. It doesn't necessarily have to be a full week. It doesn't even need to be four hours. You can do decision training in short increments during roll call training. You can start to interleave those skill sets and bring them all together uh, so that officers are, are getting regular updates on their training uh, on a regular basis. So to answer your question, yes, I think mental health screening would be fantastic. I don't think that's the primary driver for these cases. I think the primary driver for these cases is that when an officer is engaged in these encounters, they don't have attentional resources and either they don't have the tools to solve the problem that they're faced with, or they haven't trained their skill sets to the point that they're able to devote their attentional resources where they need to in, in the moment. Uh, that improves with training. So the example of the jujitsu people who panic when uh, they're like first experiencing body weight pressure on top of them. That goes away after they've experienced it over a period of time, and they start to have the skill sets to solve that particular type of problem. They're no longer panicking. They're able to breathe, and they're able to make good decisions in that type of environment. We can do the same thing for our officers and improve decision-making in these environments as well, and we should be looking at our tools. Are our tools the... the um, have our tools been designed with the understanding that officers don't have attentional resources to pay to them? Our tactics should be the same way. Mm -hmm. If we're expecting our officers to make rational decisions about tactics in the moment, have our tactics been designed to give some resilience to surprises, to things occurring that an officer is not necessarily expecting? Uh, I think oftentimes we train towards perfection. 
we train towards the idea that officers are going to get it right. But the fact of the matter is officers are going to misdiagnose situations. They're going to misdiagnose people's intentions. They're going to find themselves in, in bad positions. It's going to happen given the, the nature of the work that they do. And so do we have tactics? Do we have tools that account for these human uh, fall, you know, fallibilities? Do we have the tools and tactics? Um, and, and really, when we think about things like less lethal, we should be training for failure. We should be saying... Uh, yeah, I expect this to change behavior, just not the way that I think it will. And so have we set ourselves up to, to uh, have success, even if the outcome isn't exactly what I expected in that moment? Mm -hmm. Hey, thanks so much. Uh, respectful of your time. I appreciate uh, you coming on the show, uh, giving us some insight into this phenomenon, talking about training and, and what we could be doing to improve. Uh, your articles are outstanding. We're going to post a couple and your links uh, on the show notes. Uh, what are you doing these days? What are you up to? What are you studying? What, what are you writing about? Yeah, right now, uh, working on a research project that, that's looking at how post-event information changes an officer's uh, memory of an event. So, uh, you know, for instance, if an officer watches video after a shooting, how does that change uh, the officer's memory for the event? Um, and uh, we're doing some more work on perception response times and transitioning between tools and how that impacts both decision making and an officer's ability to to respond and the propensity to make errors. So if I'm moving between tools and tasks, how does that change my ability to perceive changes in my environment? Hmm. Um, and yeah, if people are interested in the research, uh, my parents were very uncreative when they when they named me. So uh, you should use Paul L. Taylor. Uh, and uh, if you add police to the end of that, my research will pop up on Scholar One for you. Yeah, great. Yeah, I, I fell into that. There's another Paul Taylor out there, also uh, an academic and educator. Hey, thanks so much for taking the time. I appreciate uh, everything you said today. I appreciate the work you're doing for the profession. Thank you, Jim. I really appreciate it. All right. And to our audience, our listeners, hey, thanks for listening and hope you enjoyed today's uh, podcast. Let me know what you think. And if you'd like a topic address, let me know at policingmatters at police1.com, policingmatters at police1.com. Hey, stay safe and uh, look forward to talking to you again real soon. Take good care.